sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs, and today I'm happy to be joined by Alexandra Falindra from the University of Illinois, Chicago, who's an associate professor. Uh, and a lot of you have probably heard Alexandra on the show in the past. Um, she's done a few shows with Trey, and we were excited to be able to get uh, she and I together. Alexandra and I talked a little bit earlier this week, and um, I could have kept talking for a while, so... I think we'll have a lot of fun this morning with the show, especially because, uh, you know, we have a week where we have a lot of fun things to talk about. We have, obviously, Bill Barr, contempt of Congress, executive power and privilege. Uh, We have China, tariffs, the stock market, um, moving uh, ships in the Navy towards Iran. And then, obviously, uh, even more on Trump tax releases and what we're seeing in California and Illinois in terms of future ballot placements. So, Alexandra, I'm excited for us to, to get to talk this morning. Yes, it's a very exciting uh, week, Will, uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, and I feel I feel good this week because I feel like uh, at least on my last show or two, I've I've had kind of more boring weeks. So this week, as things have happened, I've been selfishly thinking, I'm glad it's my week to get to talk a little bit versus um, some weeks that are a little more bureaucracy based versus some of the more fun political pieces. I don't know if "fun" is the right word, but some of the more exciting political pieces happening. Definitely interesting. I'll I'll grant you that. Interesting. One. There's the word. That's a better word. Um, fun makes me miss the classroom too much. Let's go ahead and jump in. And I think the, the place we obviously need to start is with the showdown between uh, the White House and Congress related to, to Bill Barr, related to the subpoena, uh, related to the idea of contempt charges. Obviously, at this point, Barr has been uh, found in contempt by Congress. And we've obviously seen the, the reactions we would expect from both parties. Uh, we have Democrats arguing that Barr needs to be thrown in jail until this is cleared up. Uh, we have the White House exerting executive privilege over the entire Mueller report at this piece. We have Republicans saying that, you know, obviously this is political theater and nothing else. Nothing will ever happen to Barr. Um, and a lot of people wondering, what does this mean, not just for today in the Mueller report, but what's going to happen when this ends up in the courts? Um, will this end up in the courts? What's that going to look like? So, Alexandria, in general, and what are your thoughts on on Bill Barr? These contempt charges are we seeing political theater? Or is there something more to this? Actually, will uh, let's take it a step back and go back to the Obama administration because this is not the first time that um, the head of the DOJ, the Attorney General, has been held in contempt of court. The honors for that is held by, of course, um, Eric Holder over his refusal to provide information on uh, a a border um, investigation uh, on drugs by the DEA gone bad, uh, which was called Fast and Furious. Uh, That was was the gun walking scandal, right? Correct. Yes, Yes, it was the gun gun walking scandal, which was a pretty insane situation. But basically, that was the first time that an attorney general was held in contempt of court of Congress by the Republican Congress because um, yeah, Holder refused to provide certain information about that uh, operation. So now we have a second uh, attorney general being held in contempt of court. Um, to what extent are these two parallel? Um, the stakes are much higher here because we're not talking about refusing to provide information about some bungled 
uh, operation of uh, the Department of Justice or the bureaucracy. Uh, we are talking about a major investigation into American democracy and the safety, or how safe American democracy is from uh, foreign interference, especially Russian interference. Um, and to what extent are political personnel, uh, especially people within um, Trump's orbit uh, were involved and complicit in these attempts to uh, interfere with the result of uh, the 2016 election. Um, so this, this, the, there is a parallel, but at the same time, uh, the situation is far more grave and um, more far more important. Um, and but it's it's very very difficult to tell, uh, given uh, the unparalleled situation here, where this is going to go. And the thing I think, I mean, bringing up Obama and bringing up what happened with Holder, I think is a, a good parallel to bring up because it really is the only time we've seen something in recent you know years brought up around this. But if I remember back correctly, Nancy Pelosi at that point said that the contempt filing was ridiculous, and Barack Obama and Holder both said it was a violation of separation of powers. Correct. Um, so on the gravity side, I mean, it's definitely a different situation. But if we look back at the legal president, I feel like what Obama and House leadership was saying at that point for the Democrats actually mirrors what Trump, Barr, and the Republicans are saying today. It's just the context of what's happening is, you know, again, more political and definitely a, a different type of threat um, for sure. But from a legal standing precedent, I feel like they're actually kind of step in toe here. I, I, it, it seems to me that that is the case. And not being a lawyer, of course, I can't really... Uh, read the tea leaves about how the courts are going to interpret this particular situation. Um, of course, here, Barr is only one player. The other key player is Bob Mueller. And uh, what is going to be really interesting is uh, Bob Mueller's next move. Um, he is going to be... While he is an employee of the Justice Department, Bob Mueller is not allowed to discuss um, this, his investigation. Um, but according to the people who know things, um, like people with law degrees, uh, that uh, prohibition ends in a couple of weeks when his appointment with the Justice Department ends. Um, so is Bob Mueller who is invited to talk to Nancy Pelosi and uh, the committees in the House uh, on, I believe is it, it's May 21st, right? Uh, is he going to show up? Uh, so far, we haven't heard from Bob Mueller. Yeah, and that's going to be an interesting part here. Um, and I think one of the interesting parts that you just brought up from the legal side, obviously, is that I mean, Barr could actually ask a judge to approve the release of any of the grand jury material. Uh, and my guess is, is that if Barr made that request, it would, it would probably be granted. Um, but in general, with this executive privilege component, the part that concerns me coming from the right is the administration's been incredibly willing to share information in the past about this. Um, maybe not as transparently or completely, but they've been willing to share large sections. I mean, we're talking largely about executive privilege on a report in the document that's printed and sitting on bookshelves all over this country already. 
And that past willingness to share is what makes me concerned about the legal standing of now we're saying we really don't want to share that much, even though we've shown a tendency towards um, that kind of sharing. And if we think about it, too, the other problem with the executive privilege component for me, thinking about this, um, you know, we've had readers or listeners this week and folks on Facebook bringing up some of the Nixonian ties, um, remembering that, you know, Donald Trump never talked to Bob Mueller. Um, so when we think about the idea of the executive privilege, the question becomes, what's really privileged here if Trump himself was never actually part of the investigation? That is true. Well, he responded to questions um, in written form. He was never interviewed in person, but he did respond to a set of, or his lawyers did respond to a set of questions um, in written form. But also, it is not clear to me that you can assert executive privilege post facto. Once after you have allowed uh, the investigation to go on, the report to come out, um, Don McGahn to go talk to uh, to Mueller, a, a, a large number of other people go talk to Mueller. And then after all that, asserting that, no, there's a, an executive privilege. Um, I don't know how the courts are going to take to that. Um, also. The issue of um, the redacted parts, the grand jury um, information, um, the grand jury information is, I think, important, but only to the degree that Bob Mueller doesn't show up at um, the House committees to actually substantiate the conclusions, because the evidence itself is definitely important, but a person with the gravitas of, of Bob Mueller to come out and say that um, we did find, for example, an attempt, an incomplete attempt to um, to work with the Russians. It didn't work out, uh, but there was an effort. It was bungled or whatever, but we, we have evidence of an effort. Um, and that we also have, and most importantly, we have evidence of obstruction of justice, that um, there is evidence that Comey's firing um, was because of this whole Russia situation and that it was an attempt to obstruct justice. Um, an assertion of that type from Bob Mueller could be a very important piece um, in the uh, in the hands of the Democrats uh, in the House, uh, in terms of pushing forward and uh, having even more momentum and more legitimacy for their um, push to have access to the tax returns, for example. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think with the court side. I, I, the person I feel really bad for today is John Roberts in a lot of ways. Um, I would not want to be John Roberts because this is going to be difficult, uncomfortable. And my biggest concern from from the court's end is the notion that the court is becoming overly politicized already exists. And this is not going to help that. I mean, if we go back and look at, you know, the formation of executive privilege and we look at the Watergate tapes and we look at Nixon, the court was unified there, nine nothing. Um, in terms of um, the public good and the need of other branches for those those tapes and those documents outweighed 
the need for executive privilege, but they were also already indicted and working through prosecutions of a number of key players from there. Um, So I think that this ultimately is going to to lead to a lot of discussions and a lot of concerns over what's the future of power in Congress and the White House. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, the thoughts that Bob Barr's or Bill Barr's going to end up in in jail, I feel like that's being completely overblown. Um, You know, the idea here, I do think we're seeing um, political theater, but I would say it's political theater with a greater purpose than just obstruction for obstruction's sake. Um, I do think there is kind of a line being drawn in the sand by both sides um, that maybe even a little bit goes beyond p- political party um, and really does come back to what is the role of Congress going to be um, compared to a White House that in the same week this conversation is happening had its leader suggest that maybe they should get an extra two years because the investigation took away their opportunity to really lead at 100 percent capacity before. Uh, and I think we're seeing that response from the Trump administration in the inner circle when it comes to the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, subpoenaing Trump Jr. this week as well. Um, and the reasons behind that, the potential impact, the need to fight it. And again, the concern really in that case falling to the fact that that is a Republican-led committee, which means that we're not necessarily seeing um, a straight political view, but that instead we're also seeing, you know, Folks like Richard Burr saying, we need to talk to him. Um, We understand what role he played potentially. We understand what role he plays today. But ultimately, we no matter no matter how well behaved he is in Trump's terms, we want to have a discussion, which, again, changes the game a little bit, too, I think. It is very puzzling to me, actually, given the general behavior of the Republicans, it was very unexpected. to see the invitation, the subpoena from uh, from Richard Burr, um, because uh, the Republican Party has, for the most part, and with very few exceptions, uh, unified behind Trump. Uh, the likes of Rand Paul are now called um, big Trump supporters. Uh, John Cornyn came out and criticized uh, Richard Burr. Uh, Lindsey Graham has fallen in line with um, the Trump administration uh, on pretty much every count. And he seems willing and enthusiastic about defending the president um, in every way. Um, Mitch McConnell um basically has been uh, basically for the past several days has been repeating case closed case closed uh and suddenly richard burr comes out with a subpoena to the president's son it is um a very interesting and puzzling twist uh and uh, it, i am not Sure, and it will be very interesting to see the reporting over the next couple of weeks, um, what exactly um, they're going after. Is this an attempt um, to basically give uh, Trump Jr. an opportunity to correct the record and uh, basically sugarcoat the situation? Or is this a real bipartisan attempt? Is is Richard Burr really, really concerned about uh, Russian interference and the, the future of our democracy? Or is this actually another way to give uh, the Trumps an opportunity to correct 
maybe incomplete or incorrect information that was provided to previous investigations. Yeah, and that's going to be really interesting to watch play out. And I mean, I think, the, as you pointed out, the surprise factor was there even within the inner circle. I mean, Mick Mulvaney came out and basically said, I found out when the news broke. There was no tip-off. There was no lead-in. There was no explanation. Here it is. Um, and even Trump's response has been, you know, my son has been exonerated. He's talked to anybody who would listen. He's given over 20 hours of testimony. What else could they possibly want from him, which does make me wonder, you know, what's that line of questioning going to look like? But it also, of course, puts me on, you know, it has the alarm bells going off of, is this um, some Republican leadership in the Senate that's starting to to turn away? Um, as you pointed out, I mean, obviously, we have um, a lot of Republicans, um, including senior Republicans, who have kind of stood up and backed Trump in a lot of these cases. Um, and if Burr is, you know, is that the first defector or is this, you know, possibly um, just kind of a, a one-off, as you pointed out, to allow Trump Jr. to to address something today that will prevent other problems from down the road? And if so, what are those and why do they exist? Um, and then obviously, I mean, outside of these areas, we've seen a lot of news about Trump this week and a couple of other lights. Uh, one being obviously looking at the the reported loss of billions of dollars over a decade in his his tax filings and looking at tax returns. And then ultimately what we're seeing from California and Illinois in terms of the idea of legislating in that they must release taxes to be placed on the ballot as presidential candidates. Um, what are your thoughts on either of these areas, Alexandra? Well, the tax returns basically confirm what everybody kind of um, suspected or knew, which is that Trump is not a particularly good. Actually, he's a pretty lousy businessman, but he is of an exceptionally good self-promoter. Um, and he is an exceptionally good survivor. He will do everything and anything and will step on anyone and everything in order to survive. And um, we see that in part in these tax returns. Um, that he didn't do well in business. He exploited um, the law, the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. And um, and basically, he has pushed the envelope uh, on the business side quite a bit. Um, he and his um, tweets basically saying that having shell companies and uh, tax shelters um, as smart uh, at a time when we have enormous um, economic inequality in this country and uh, we have started to see these practices as uh, not only a threat to um economic equality, but also a threat to democracy in general. Um, to have the president actually brag about uh, using these devices, which many of these today are illegal, um, is, uh, is incredibly problematic. So we don't see basically um, a successful businessman. We don't see the art of the deal other than the self-promotion of the president. Um, but these records don't provide, they hint to um, some key questions. And the key questions are, how does somebody who loses, uh, whose businesses are in a, 
a, a continual loss over a decade. How do you continue to borrow money um, from institutions and from uh, uh, supporters, basically, of your company? Like, what do you do to get that funding? Because if I don't pay my credit card uh, and I accumulate a debt of fifty and a hundred thousand dollars, which is at my level as a consumer, like an enormous amount of money. Um, I don't think that Bank of America is going to come back to me and say, would you like another credit card? Um, I don't think that um, I will be considered a good risk for uh, financial institutions. So, and of course, if I if they were going to give me credit, it would be at exorbitant um, interest rates with exorbitant fees because they have to secure their risk. So how is it that somebody with that track record in terms of losses um, goes to a financial institution like Deutsche Bank or um, Capital One or any of the big banks and is able to secure major loans. How does do these businesses stay afloat? The um, argument that, oh, you sort of show losses because you're building is incredibly superficial to me. Um, this is this goes a lot beyond, well beyond, um, basically technical losses on an accounting sheet. Yeah, and I mean, I don't disagree with you. Um, you know, obviously, I, I, I just feel like at this point, most of the people that voted for Trump and definitely the people supporting him today aren't doing that because they think he was a quote-unquote successful businessman. I mean, I have friends that have retired to Jacksonville, that lived in New York City, that said from the start, the guy's not good in the boardroom, he's not good as a businessman, but he can sell sort of anything to anybody, including his image in himself. Um, so again, I'm, I'm like you, kind of what you said, that you know this, this idea that he lost more than a billion in a decade on tax returns didn't really surprise me. Um, you know, obviously, I don't think he actually lost a billion. I'm sure a lot of that was moving things around to to get where he needed to for the tax breaks that he was uh, looking to to utilize or acquire. But when I look at this release of taxes, the one thing it does bring up for me is the idea of publicly releasing taxes is or tax returns is more than a ceremonial gesture. I mean, at this point, I feel like the average American is not going to go through Trump's tax returns and find the aha gotcha moment, but it's more of just an expectation that they should be out of, should be out in the public record. They should be able to be consumed. They should be able to be looked at in the idea of if you're not releasing them, you're clearly hiding these horrible things you're doing in your personal tax life or tax shelters. But the one thing I'll say about what's happening in California and Illinois is if I'm Donald Trump or I'm a Republican, I'm looking at this and saying, who cares if I don't show up on your ballot? Um, I'm not winning anyways. I'm not winning your states. And I don't think that these states have thought about the down ballot issues um, because there are Republicans in California and Illinois who show up in a presidential election, even though they know their candidate is not going to win the state. And they only show up to vote in that election and they you know, send a little love to the down ballot Republicans in the process. 
But if they don't have that presidential candidate on the ballot, my my question is going to be, you know, if this was to happen and actually play out, is there an impact on the local level? Is there an impact on the state level where ultimately they're leading to Republican voters feeling disenfranchised, even if, again, the flip side is going to be the argument that they could be on the ballot if they just released these documents. And if they're thinking through this the way that I'm mentioning it right now and they care about that, they should just release their taxes. Um, so I'm also very curious to see, you know, after the California Senate passes that this week, what that ultimately leads to and whether this is something where there's a state in the country that's actually willing to go beyond sort of the the lip service to this concept and actually kick a Republican presidential nominee or in this given election cycle, a Democrat off of the ballot because of tax returns. It would definitely be very interesting to see. Um I expect that the Democrats, just because right now, um, seeing that they're patrolling the boundaries and they're protecting norms is incredibly important, they're going to fall in line. I don't expect that any Democratic candidate, um, especially not a fringe one in terms of like people who are from within the party and have strong party uh, commitments, they're all going to um, provide their tax returns and and more information. They're going to go above and beyond in terms of that because they need to signal that they're not Trump. Um, It's interesting to me that also the news was that I think New Mexico has also signed um, the compact to, because there are two different processes. One is the issue of the um, of the taxes, and the other process that's going on also is the issue of uh, state giving their electoral uh, college votes to um, the winner of the uh, the public uh, the national vote rather than uh, um, to the state vote. So we are seeing that compact also moving along. These two processes could mean um, very interesting dynamics happening in 2020. Um, And I don't know if um, I think that I don't know if the Republican um, base uh, would necessarily turn up if Trump is not on the ballot because uh, the state won't put him on the ballot um, due to the release of the tax returns. I don't know if it will uphold in court um, because is this can is there a claim of privacy that a person can make and what effect could that have um, to being able to maintain uh, this norm of uh, openness and of having the, the tax returns open to, to the public. Uh, so I'm not sure um, on one hand, as a as a Democrat, I'm sort of secretly rejoicing this uh, little moment of rebelliousness, but I'm not sure that um, it will have uh, it, it will be a good thing uh, down the line um, to try to enforce the norms through legal means. Absolutely. And I mean, I do think you're right. I mean, again, I look at this and I'm just like poor John Roberts. Um, is sitting there thinking eventually this is going to end up on my desk, whether it's now or later. Uh, but again, I just worry about the reactionary tone to it. Um, I do think there's an element of rebelliousness to it. Um, and I don't fundamentally disagree with the idea of sharing income taxes as being you know, something that shouldn't be expected of somebody who wants to 
you know, quote unquote, lead the free world. But at the end of the day, I always think, you know, is this being done just because of Trump? And what, what, what can happen as a result 20 years from now that we're not thinking through because we are so fixated on Trump hasn't returned his tax or hasn't released his tax returns, which means he's clearly hiding something. So we need to operate on how do we get those documents without thinking a year down the road what it ultimately could lead to or cause. Um, so I'm just always thinking, again, just beyond this this one component. But again, it will be interesting to sort of see how how that part plays out ultimately. Um, yes, it's true because um, essentially uh, it's very hard through the fog of war, essentially, to see what the long-term effects of um, what's going on today are going to be. Because on the optimistic side, um, you know, we will be able to get through this and that um, we will actually, people will be more aware of the importance of democratic norms and more conscious about supporting them and not think that, take for granted American democracy. On the other hand, um, Trump has provided an example to would-be autocrats um, of how to do it. And somebody else who doesn't have Trump's deficiencies in terms of leadership ability um, and uh, organization and um, just basically governance um, could take his place. Uh, somebody akin to um, to Putin, basically, uh, the American version of Putin, somebody with uh, experience within the bureaucracy, with political experience, who recognizes that, oh, this is possible to do in the United States. So both paths become open right now. And uh, from the vantage point of 2019, you hope that we are going to go down the more positive and optimistic path, but there's very little to preclude um, the other way, especially because of institutional changes that have taken place within the past decade. And I'm specifically thinking of uh, Citizens United and uh, the involvement, the, uh, the lack of control that parties now have uh, over their internal processes. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about the party piece. Um, and I don't disagree with you. I mean, the concern of what somebody with a little more political skill and knowledge of the inner workings could do, uh, obviously, I, I think about that of, you know, if somebody had that side of experience that Trump obviously came in lacking, um, what they'd be what they'd be able to do could be uh, substantial. It could be monumental in a lot of ways. The The one place I think I'm differing from a lot of folks is also thinking about the fact that it could be coming from the left. Um, you know, to some degree, I mean, Obama had that knowledge that we're talking about. Um, he didn't have all of the Trump tendencies or goals of holding power. But, um, you know, it could be left or right or it could be independent, military, whatever it looks like. But the idea that somebody could come in and decide, you know, I like this position and I found some loopholes that mean I don't really have to ever leave. Uh, and how we confront that and battle that, especially, you know, to your larger point about the, the Electoral College and possible changes there. 
there are lots of ways that the right person could could really change the rules to their benefit if they have the right folks on the court and the right public swing behind them. Yes, absolutely. And um, the this whole theory of the unified executive, this um, basically um, intellectual attempt to uh, sort of rank, bring the executive ahead of the legislative is also incredibly dangerous. Um, whether the danger comes from the left or the right, from my perspective, um, given the trends um, across the world and given, um, you know, I, I come to this from the perspective of political psychology and uh, I happen to uh, believe based on my research that it's social identities more than um, economic uh, considerations and grievances, which is um, what the left tends to emphasize, that actually um, are more associated with uh, support for authoritarian regimes. Um, so I I doubt, I have graver doubts that it could happen from the left than it could happen in the U.S. at least, that it would um, show up from, from the right. Um, but it doesn't matter which side it comes from. Um, ultimately, the issue is how vulnerable are our institutions to an assault from within. And that's always the concern. I mean, I, you know, you mentioned the political psychology. Um, my background is an institutionalist, and I've always sort of argued that, you know, the institution can survive anybody. Um, but you're right. There's definitely more reason today for me to wonder, regardless of what institution we're looking at, the role that personality is really going to play um, in the future of American politics, where that seems to be driving far more than the institutional piece. I think a nice segue here, obviously, we've been talking about Trump and um, you know, you had mentioned the art of the deal, but we have going on with China this week with the implementation of um, the new tariffs and what we've seen from the stock market. Uh, it's funny, I, I told Alexander before we started the show that uh, I'm on vacation this week and we're in Savannah, Georgia, and I'm sitting last night on River Street watching um, the giant cargo ships go out. And I'm just wondering, you know, with the new tariffs now in place, what's the value of that ship today versus what it may have been uh, at the start of the week or two weeks ago when it first left um, or first started its moves? So obviously on this part, we've definitely seen um, Trump taking um, some pretty clear uh, positions that have really been based on the fact that, you know, obviously the United States, China's net buyer, China's the net seller here. Um, and the thought's always been that because of that, Beijing would be more likely to blink long before D.C. would. And then we've also thought about the fact that, you know, given the, the current political pressures, that they would be less likely to want to engage in or be able to get through a more prolonged trade war. But then it ultimately came down to both sides maybe even asking for um, a little more than the other side expected or was possible. So I was interested, what's your, what are your thoughts on where we are with this? How long do you think this goes? Do you think um, we're able to see positive change here? What does this say about Trump and his leadership and his administration? I am very concerned about this, um, in part because I've looked at my uh, 401k this week and um, what I saw was not happy. Um, but um, more broadly, um, I 
don't think that the Trump administration's approach with China has a rhyme and reason and real strategy. Um, basically, just imposing tariffs upon tariffs upon tariffs, hoping for a change in behavior um, by doing the same thing over and over when it hasn't worked for over a year. And then basically you're just escalating and you're hoping that escalation is going to um, produce the kind of behavioral change that you want is basically, you know, trying to hit the pinata well blindfolded um and the um the problem with this is that the ultimate uh, loser in this is me is the american consumer because a, a tariff is a, a tax on me on consumer products and it's on the middle class and it is on working people who need to buy a dishwasher and, and a washing machine. And um, my kids' clothes are all from China. Um, so I am seeing um, more of my disposable income um, going away uh, because of these tariffs. Um, and um, this is not necessarily um, helping in any way because it is not clear what the ultimate goal exactly other than beating China which is sort of this generic thing like I don't think that the U.S. has a really clear set of goals uh, and it's not just China it's really in any relationship um I think that we have come to approach international relations uh, more like as if we are a, a player in the ring of WWF rather than, um, you know, members of an international community who have differences and are looking for ways to cooperate and to resolve um, differences. I mean, it's like about who is going to um, just slam harder their opponent uh, on the on the ground and then do a victory lap. That's not how it works. And I think, I mean, what you're hitting on, I, I feel coming from the right where China has definitely been I think the issue or trade in general that has has split the party more than anything else. Um, and obviously, I mean, I think we've seen that, you know, this trade issue is not one based on pure party loyalty. I mean, Chuck Schumer is out there saying this is one where Trump needs to hang tough while Joni Ernst is out there saying, what the hell am I supposed to do about 2020? Do my voters want me to support you blindly or do they want me to do everything that you're kind of hitting to and make sure that we protect um, their economic interests? And in reality, I mean, what we're seeing here is, you know, the rural America is facing the brunt of this, um, especially with what we're seeing against what they're doing with U.S. commodities and what we're seeing with the tariff impact. Um, and the problem is, it seems to be that Trump is fighting this from an intellectual property, commercial abuse angle. And ultimately, we're ending up in a position where Republicans are forced to wonder, does my Republican identity drive this or does my geography drive this or does the industry I work in drive this? or my current life situation drive this. 
But I do think the idea of turning this into a 2020 issue is going to be a a problem for Republicans. I mean, in reality, I, I didn't hear much this week from senators facing 2020 contested elections that was suggesting they were supporting Trump, maybe outside of, um, I think, Tom Tillis from North Carolina uh, came out somewhat strongly um, and basically was arguing that we need to go in and have this from a position of strength and that Trump understands the economic fundamentals and the political realities they're facing. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think you're right. This is one where it's one of those cross-cutting issues almost where party for a lot of voters goes out the window. And it's going to be very interesting not just to see what happens with, you know, obviously 401ks, the Dow, the stock market, the pricing of these individual goods, but how Republicans that need Trump support to win in 2020 deal with the fact that Trump support might mean having to back something that actually hurts their constituents. I would assume for a lot of those Republicans with 2020 Senate elections, they're sitting there just hoping that any negative effects of this are delayed enough that they don't feel it until after folks are done at the ballot box. And for me, um, the even more interesting thing is how are Republican Party funders going to deal with this? Because, I mean, um, major industries like Walmart uh, and other uh, major uh, Republican um, funders, essentially, uh, have a lot to lose uh, from... uh, basically strategies that go against free trade. Um, So I can't imagine that um, the big, big industry funders are happy right now or that the, uh, I mean, they must be caught between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, you know, the Republican Party has traditionally been the big supporter of smaller government, less regulation, less taxes, uh, more free trade. But in this case, um, do you continue to support them financially because they gave you a, a tax cut, but then turned around and hurt you through tariffs? Um, that's uh, a very interesting, uh, I think, angle to this. And we haven't heard um, openly. I'm sure that there is a lot of quiet diplomacy on the Hill uh, from lobbyists saying, you know, this has to change. This can't be going on. This is hurting us. Um, But we haven't seen business interests, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, come out and criticize this uh, openly. Not yet, at least. Um, and I think, and I think this week will be a telling one. Obviously, as the negotiations start, but um, there's definitely been some. You know, feels like there's been some back and forth and some some late alterations um, by both sides. And like I said, I think this week will tell us a lot more in terms of what that response is going to look like. Um, the other thing from this week that really, you know, if we if we use uh, Tillis's idea of a position of strength. The one thing that really did surprise me this week when I sort of opened the news and saw the, the CNN alert on my phone was um, obviously the decision to move the USS Abraham Lincoln into the Gulf um, due to concerns about Iran starting to move more short-range ballistic missiles uh, via ship uh, within the region. And then ultimately we saw the addition of additional 
pieces uh, later this week, um, including even yesterday with uh, bringing forward um, the USS Arlington, a Patriot battery, um, and obviously working more towards concerns. And I believe the quote was heightened Iranian readiness to conduct offensive operations. And then obviously yesterday, Iran choosing to pull out of uh, the nuclear deal partially. Um, and again, it wasn't that I was surprised after thinking about it. It's just I hadn't really been primed by our news to think about Iran for a while. And all of a sudden it was we're sending in an aircraft carrier and we're also following it up with uh, a Patriot missile system, which comes with some power and some strength to it. So what do you think is going on with Iran? Do you think these things all tie together? Um, what do you think happens there over the next few weeks? Yeah, I feel like um, every week, at least uh, Americans are kind of learning geography because every week we have a different international crisis. Last week was Venezuela, right? Um, and this week uh, we're back in the Middle East. Um, I think that the confrontation with Iran is, especially at this point, time and place, is really, really dangerous because it's not just Iran. We have a very, very confrontational Israel. We have an authoritarian Turkey. We have a major crisis in Syria. We have uh, Saudi Arabia being not as stable as we think it is. Um, so the politics of the Middle East are uh, very complicated, and I can't say that I'm an expert. But from what I understand, you know, the Trump administration, because of Kushner and Kushner's um, ties to both Israel and Saudi Arabia, um, basically have uh, led to a an embrace of the of confrontation with Iran because both Israel and Saudi Arabia actually happen to consider Iran as a prime threat in the region. Um, and uh, on the other hand, and Iran is a problem child, but on the other hand, Iran is right now a stable country there. And uh, yes, it creates political problems, but um, destabilizing Iran, starting a war with Iran, which is uh, maybe not a nuclear power, but close to a nuclear power, but it definitely has chemical weapons. It definitely has serious military capabilities. Um, that is not going to be good for the U.S. or for the region. And I am not so much... Um, worried that Iran w wants to have a direct confrontation. I am worried that this very uh, cavalier uh, attitude towards foreign policy and the way we're approaching these things now and the president's lack of um, clear attention to these issues and lack of interest in the how policy works and in the details could inadvertently get us into a serious confrontation. Um, and that is not a war with Iraq, with Iran is not something that we should want or anybody should want. I think you're right. I mean, from a regional side, um, you know, I agree completely. I mean, Coming from a position of power versus Iran, reminding them of potential consequences 
it all makes sense to me there, but to the bigger picture of every week we seem to be picking somebody else to go do this with, that is getting concerning. Um, because again, what happens on the day that, you know, we're kind of calling out the bullies, what happens on the day the bully decides they're ready to fight? Um, and again, it's not just like the aircraft carrier is part one of this. I mean, if we look at the rest of the week with Iran, um, I believe middle of the week, Tuesday or Wednesday, we put sanctions on Iranian metals, which is uh, their largest non-oil-based export. Uh, we also went ahead and warned every country using Iranian oil um, that their sanctions would be coming if they didn't stop buying. We designated the Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist group. Um, all sorts of different pieces. So it's not like we're just looking at that one component, but it, it's a big picture attack Iran week um, from all sides. And while I'm not fundamentally opposed, my concern again is showing up for a week, doing these things, and then moving on to our next target. I think the messaging gets lost. I think the bigger concerns get lost. And I also think, to your point, it makes it very easy for the left, especially, um, to draw attention to the fact of these aren't really well thought out things. We're just kind of dabbling in different areas and figuring out what sticks. And as some of the accusations this week looked like, maybe even dabbling for the sake of seeing what it's going to do to polling numbers till we find the right place and then figuring out how do we ride this through 2020, which is, again, a problem in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the wag the dog um, process of doing politics, basically trying to create international tension in order to see if that's going to create a um, uh, basically pull around the flag uh, effect. Um, that A is unethical, B is incredibly dangerous. But it's also not something that uh, I can't see uh, Trump doing. He has not shown any sign that he is an ethical or a politically responsible leader who um, recognize who is doing things for the country as a whole. First of all, uh, he has never shown any indication that he cares about the country as a whole. Um, he has, he clearly cares about his base and he wants to do things to please his base. But even those things are not necessarily thought out. And in a lot of ways, they are more emotional gratification rather than material support and um, sort of long-term a sustenance of the base. It's all yeah, about yeah. feeding the frenzy. And I think that's the key is, I mean, is the base. If you want to do things to get the base to support you, you have to help the base follow the thought process. Um, and I think that's what I'm lacking here is, again, I'm not saying I'm, you know, squarely in the Trump base, but as somebody who leans right, I can make sense of this, but I'm having to put together the narrative and the story on my own. And that's a dangerous place to be as a president getting ready for re-election against a, you know, at this point, literally just a field of hungry wolves that are looking to attack, bouncing from place to place to place. And even on, I mean, the wag the dog effect, which I don't know if I think it's there yet or not, but either way, going into Albania and the actual wag the dog approach, that's a lot less terrifying than going into the Middle East and risking destabilizing the entire region and causing major problems uh, that would last well beyond 2020 if things don't go as well as we maybe hope they would. Exactly, absolutely. And we have already spent 
several trillion dollars um, in uh, two major wars uh, that have lasted for 20 years. Um, we can't afford, like, it is not fair to um, the next generation and to the people uh, of the United States to be going out there into foolish campaigns that would start another military confrontation, um, which will cost lives uh, and will cost uh, have an enormous material cost at the expense of our children, at the expense of our health care, at the expense of our education system. Yeah, and that's, I think that's where I keep coming back to is, I mean, I would love to see Iran change, but it's not something where I'm viewing this as imminent threat today as things stand. Um, even yesterday with the announcement from Rouhani that they're going to back up, back up from some parts of the negotiated uh, nuclear deal doesn't concern me. And I'm sitting there at first and I was like, why am I not more bothered by this? And I was like, well, hell, we pulled out of the deal ourselves last year. So how can I sit there and turn around and say to them, you need to stay in and be doing this? But it doesn't make me think they're becoming a, you know, a nuclear threat again and that we're going to see mass weaponization or anything. And I think that's where I kind of keep coming back to is, you know, if, if we left them alone, are things perfect there? No. Um, could things get worse? Yes. Do I think there's an imminent threat that is personally endangering the United States, its citizens, its economy today from there? Not really, um, but I'm curious to see what happens. Because, again, when you start moving battleships and missile systems, that's either a show of force or something else is coming. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it is very scary. And I agree with you. I don't see imminent threat. Uh, then again, I'm not John Bolton, who sees imminent threat pretty much everywhere. Everywhere. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, this is to me it is incredibly scary um to see the united states sort of inching its way towards yet another confrontation having opened another you know um front in venezuela uh yeah last week literally i mean and uh that didn't go very well either um we need to be a lot more careful than this administration is. And part of the problem here is also that uh, there has been incredible, astonishing attrition in uh, America's diplomatic capabilities because essentially half of the State Department, a lot of people have left um, the the federal bureaucracy. And uh, maybe to some conservatives, that is a good thing. But you're talking about essentially the institutional memory and the know-how know and knowledge base of the federal government. And this is important um, for the U.S. to be able to maintain a consistent foreign policy, you need to have very deep expertise in all of these regions uh, by people who are nonpartisan and who are academic experts and who are diplomacy experts um, in order to be able to formulate 
effective long-term policy um, because this is not the apprentice. And I feel, I constantly feel like our politics has become basically the Washington version of the, append, the apprentice. And that is very, very scary to me. Yeah, and again, I mean, I, I would say that I am one who believes that some attrition has been positive, especially within the bureaucracy. Um, but at the end of the day, we're doing this the last two weeks with acting secretaries of defense and acting secretaries of Homeland Security, um, which does lead to some credence to what you're saying in terms of, you know, we have people in these roles that may have some experience and some history, but there has been um, a brain drain. And even if that has been intentionally done with meaning and purpose behind it, there's still been a loss of institutional and relationship knowledge that that I think is is needing to be put on the table the way you have this morning. Um, so, yeah, so that's going to be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support's what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. Subscribing to the show also really helps as to sharing our episodes. Easy to do in the podcast app, typically. Um, there's that share symbol, which is normally a triangle in whatever you're using. And word of mouth is obviously our best advertising, and we'd greatly appreciate that. Along with any reviews and ratings you'd like to leave on our iTunes uh, area. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we tend to post throughout the week and engage in some some fun banter is facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. This show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us uh, for our subscriber bonus show. Just to let everybody know it's going to be delayed in coming up. Uh, it'll probably be posted um, on Sunday this week instead of on Saturday because Mike is um, doing his regent's duties at Northern Kentucky University today and uh, attending a battery, I will say, of commencement exercises. So apologies for the slight delay there, but wanted to make sure everybody was aware. Thanks and have a good week.